So tonight I like to continue with this theme of right or wise action that we've been looking at over the last couple of weeks. And this is partly because this is such a huge topic. It pretty much covers the whole of our lives. In fact, we could probably do a whole entire talk series just on wise action because everything we do from the minute we wake up until we go to bed has the possibility to be wise action. Has the possibility, but speaking for myself, not everything I do I could classify as wise. So interesting to see. What is that gap? Why is that gap? Where is that gap? In some ways, that's what we'll start touching into tonight. So just picking up from last week, remembering that the basic definition of wise action is about three specific aspects of our behavior. It's the invitation to refrain from killing living beings, to refrain from stealing, and to refrain from misusing our sexual energy in ways that cause harm. So as you all probably recognize, those are also the first three of the five ethical training precepts. And just to flesh it out, the other two of those training precepts are not lying or speaking harshly and not taking intoxicants. So in this context, we've already covered the speech one with the factor of wise speech. So wise action takes those first three. And like all of these path factors, all of these training precepts, they start out pretty simply, but they're endlessly refinable, endlessly extendable. And in the context of the Eightfold Path, they are profoundly interconnected with all of the other path factors. So last week we were mostly exploring wise action in terms of just that first aspect of not killing living beings. And in the group discussion, we ended up focusing mostly on insects. (laughs) If you were here last week, there was a lot of discussion about ants and slugs and snails and what was uh, Katrina's dilemma? The praying mantis, yes, yeah. And we were mostly mostly focusing on our individual actions. So tonight I'd like to look at the second aspect of wise action, which is refraining from stealing, and to extend it beyond our individual lives, also into in terms of our collective action too. So just to begin with the traditional definition of wise action, the training precept is to refrain from taking what is not given. So, in other words, what's not freely offered. So it's a little bit more nuanced than simply not stealing. So it invites us to consider whether what we're taking is really offered to us or not. And this covers not just money and material things, but also our time and energy. So one Dharma teacher I was talking to, he felt that people being late was taking the not given, because it's taking people's time and energy that hasn't been freely offered to keep somebody waiting. 
So there's lots of different nuances. And in terms socially, we can see this in terms of how we interact. You know, we probably all have friends who seem to take more than they give in terms of time and attention and so forth. Or who how they split the bill at the end of a meal or oh, forgot their wallets or you know there's all these different ways that we can consciously or unconsciously take more than our fair share take what's not really being freely offered and then we can also consider whether what we're taking or using in terms of our impact on the planet so now it gets really vast we can look at, are we living in ways that help to reduce the harm that we're causing to the environment or not? And the more we start to contemplate just this aspect of wise action, the bigger it seems to get. So Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese monk who many of you know of, he and his Plum Village Sangha took the five training precepts and reworked them in terms of what he called mindfulness trainings. So each precept has a different mindfulness training and it expands them beyond our usual human-centered approach to encompass all life forms and not just look at our individual action but our collective responsibility too to take care of each other and all living beings. So I'd like to share the way they've reworked this second ethical training precept. So traditionally this one, as you heard, is worded as refraining from taking that which is not given. And in Thich Nhat Hanh's interpretation, they emphasize the positive benefits of doing this. So he calls this particular training the training of true happiness. And it says... Aware of the suffering caused by exploitation, social injustice, stealing and oppression, I am committed to practicing generosity in my thinking, speaking and acting. I am determined not to steal and not to possess anything that should belong to others. And I will share my time, energy and material resources with those who are in need. I will practice looking deeply to see that the happiness and suffering of others are not separate from my own happiness and suffering. That true happiness is not possible without understanding and compassion. And that running after wealth, fame, power and sensual pleasures can bring much suffering and despair. I am aware that happiness depends on my mental attitude and not on external conditions, that I can live happily in the present moment simply by remembering that I already have more than enough. I am committed to practicing right livelihood so that I can help reduce the suffering of living beings on earth and stop contributing to climate change. Got it? So I don't know about for you, but for me that feels just a little bit daunting in the vastness, the depth of, of it. So we want to keep in mind that this is a training and 
this training leads to happiness and we have to start where we are in the context of our own lives now to just begin to examine where there might be room for improvement. And at the same time, if we recognize some of these and we have the intention to make changes, those changes need to be sustainable over the long term. So I think for many of us, it's part of our default conditioning to be very binary, very all or nothing. Right, that's it, I'm going vegan, I'm never going to drive a petrol car again, and I'm going to go and live on a commune somewhere, or you know whatever our fantasy of right action is, and then it's not sustainable. So there's a lot of studies these days that making small incremental changes has a longer term benefit than that kind of all or nothing overreaching the mark and then not meeting our own expectations and then collapsing into disillusionment or apathy. So making those small changes is generally more sustainable and what makes wise action wise is that it's connected to all the other path factors. So in this case, particularly wise intention is it grounded in kindness and compassion to ourself and to others. That also helps the change to be more sustainable. So with that in mind, we can come back to Thich Nhat Hanh's invitation to consider not just our own happiness, but the welfare of all living beings on earth. And so that brings in issues of social justice and climate change. And just to say, as I mentioned on Sunday, in the West so far, at least historically, there tends to have been more of an emphasis on silent individual meditation practice and not so much attention to what's sometimes referred to as socially engaged Buddhism. But that term also has been criticized because some people say if you're really practicing the Dharma, it can't help but be socially engaged. So it's not something separate. And as we heard the other week when Marty presented, the Buddha himself didn't make that distinction. So you might remember the quote that Marty gave, uh, attributed to the Buddha. The person practicing both for their own welfare and for the welfare of others is the foremost, the best, the preeminent, the supreme and the finest. So the Buddha really praised the person who is working for themselves and others. And that connects to the themes of Sangha and spiritual friendship that we were exploring on Sunday. And we were looking at this Sangha here as being formed from a network of friendships that are grounded in a shared intention, that shared intention of developing wisdom and compassion and waking up out of ignorance, really for the benefit of all. So I was thinking about it, and in some ways this sangha is a little bit like a laboratory or a um, an incubator where we can, you know, in relatively sheltered circumstances, we can train in offering and receiving this dharma friendship with people who, to some extent, share similar values. 
so that ultimately we can extend that same care to people who might have radically different ways of being in the world and then beyond that to non-human beings also all of the living creatures that we share this planet with so just as a starting point for our discussion about some of these themes I'd like to share a couple of quotes from Greg Kramer's book which we're working with for this series and he's describing how wise action requires us to investigate the bigger picture of how our behavior impacts not only our immediate social circles but the broader communities and beyond that the whole planet so he says the path factor of right action offers us a simple but exquisite challenge it encompasses every action we take and invites us to ask does a particular action lead to an increase in the wholesome and a decrease in the unwholesome does this action lead to the welfare of myself others or both and in speaking of the welfare of others at the same time he spoke of one's own welfare the buddha was clearly aiming this path factor at both personal liberation and human flourishing so it invites us to ask whether right action applies only to our personal path or must extend to our relationships and to our social influences and impact and he goes on to say because the path does not unfold in a vacuum the human body mind is intrinsically relational and we live our lives in utter interdependence with others so all action is action done with an impact on other people and i would add and non-human beings even when we're alone this means that all action is morally laden whether we recognize this or not and in this complex human system ignorance of some injustices is unavoidable but sustained ignorance in the face of the evidence however is avoidable and addressing our blindness is part of this path of refining right action So this is a hugely challenging area of practice if we look carefully and as one teacher said if looking at ethics isn't making your life more difficult then you're not really looking So this isn't necessarily comfortable and I appreciated at the end Greg pointing out sustained ignorance in the face of evidence needs to be addressed and addressing our blindness is part of the path of refining wise action so thank you for your attention i wanted to give just a little bit of context and then leave plenty of time for us to to sort of explore this together